Well, good. I like that. Uh, good morning. And um, it caught me off guard. Uh, would you open your Bibles? That's where we need to go. That's where we need to go. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can turn to page 980 in your Blue Pew Bible. Um, thank you, AJ, I think, for that video and for uh, helping us through that. I mean, part of the reasons, obviously, um, a lot of new faces, a lot of people we just want to connect with in a directory. Um, also, AJ, as uh, creative director here at Grace, sends out uh, a Life at Grace email every Thursday morning. And that is our really primary way of communicating to the church what's going on, how you can get involved, things to be praying for, things to get involved in. And that's just, uh, we're not going to uh, inundate you with emails if we have your primary email address. And don't give us like your fourth one that you only put on for like new junk, uh, you know, email that we all have. Let's be honest. Um, but AJ, uh, every Thursday morning, sends out a, that email. Very helpful to, um, to be on. So... Uh, if you uh, missed your opportunity, you can go to Grace Connect and provide that information uh, at the end of the service. Uh, but this morning, uh, we are continuing along in our series on the vision of Grace Church, uh, a series that we are calling Blueprint. Um, and this is an opportunity over the course of four weeks to really bring clarity to uh, the why, the how, and the what of Grace Church as mandated through the scriptures. And, and in our vision, uh, we want to answer those three questions, right? The, the why, and the how, and the what. Um, so on the screen, we will have our, our vision statement that we've been walking through in this series. And that at Grace Church, uh, we are passionate about glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, uh, service, and mission. And so um, we want to, if we were to break that down, our hope is that those three questions are answered in that statement, right? The why and the how and the what. So we go to the next slide. Um, the why if we exist is to glorify God. Right? I mean, that, that is, we read the scripture, you just see that over and over and over again. Any church that is following the scriptures wants to glorify God. We cannot do anything better than that. Right? That is top row, center of our church, is we want to glorify God. Well, how are we going to make that happen? Again, through what we see in the scriptures, uh, Jesus says, go and make disciples. So, so we want to make disciples. We want to glorify God by making disciples. Okay, well, what's our design plan? What, what are we going to do to make disciples? And that's where we get to these four distinctives that we're walking through. Um, Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, and then finally Christ-centered mission. Um, four distinctives that, that doesn't just explain the what, but it also serves as a pathway. Right? There, there, there hopefully is movement across, or since it's starting over there, there's movement across this vision statement. And um, we began this series two weeks ago, and we looked at Christ-centered worship. And what we said was true, is that worship begins with God. Worship's not about what we do or who we are. Worship begins with who He is, what He has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And worship occurs amongst God's people when the holiness of God and the grace of God come crashing together at the cross of Jesus Christ. That where we see that is where now worship occurs. And, and when our hearts turn from worshiping ourselves or, or worshiping false gods to now worshiping the one true God, he brings us into a community, right? So there's movement, worship that leads to community. 
a Christian is like an adopted child uh, finding himself or herself not just with new parents, but with new siblings as well. That there's always this kind of corporate nature to salvation in the Bible. That, that God not only saves you, but he saves you into a people. Into a people that kind of join this vision together, right? That's why this kind of really now postmodern, we've just seen the last really couple of generations of um, particularly younger people having this mentality of like, man, I have Jesus, so I don't need the church. Or the idea that me and Jesus are good, but the church, man, there's hypocrisy there, and it's just stale, and it's not me anymore. It's a, it's a dying institution. So yes, I have Jesus, but I don't need the church. When you read your Bible, you just find, man, that just doesn't make sense. Like, it would have been unheard of in the first century to be saved and not part of the church. And the reason is you cannot separate Christ from the church any more than you can separate a head from its body and still have a healthy life. Any relationship, any um, center of, of, of worship or praise is going to be is going to bring people together, right? So C.S. Lewis, in talking about friendship, he says, you know how friendship starts? Ironically, friendship doesn't start looking for friends. Friendship begins when two people are staring at something and they look to the side of them, and C.S. Lewis puts it this way, um, when one person says to another, "Um, what, you too? You like rooting for the Jets? They're going to go, oh, and 16 too? Like, let's be friends, all right? Because we had nothing else. Let's be friends. It's, it's never just a desire to be friends. It's that a common love, a common passion that brings people together. Something that's at the center, and out of something at the center, friendship forms around an interest, a hobby, a passion. And so the church as a community is men or women who are brought together by common love for Jesus Christ. And we said last week, man, let's have Christ at the center, and it doesn't matter how different everything else is. There can be true community when Christ is at the center. And when you get people who together worship God, who have experienced his grace, they can stand side by side and go, you too? This, this God just bestowed his grace upon you too. You, you've been saved from the mess because of what he has done, nothing that because of we have done, like you as well. Like, and that's a moment that now a community is born. So now we get to this point, and the question becomes, how will this community act? And in the next two weeks, we, we're, we're going to first see how this community acts towards one another, and then next week, finish up by asking, how does this community act toward the world around it? So this morning, it will be Christ-centered service, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So with all that said, would you follow along as we read the first four verses? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." 
across those four verses, did you notice the movement? Did you notice the movement from worship to community and then to service? Like we just saw that pathway in these four verses alone. Um, Paul is writing to a church, and the church is in the city of Philippi. And this letter is interesting, and that's the only letter Paul writes where there's no correction in it. It's the only letter to a church he writes in our Bible where he has no beef with them. Like, they are doing really well. And so this letter is the most affectionate of all the ones we have of Paul. It is just an overflow of his gladness of heart when it comes to this church. And so his purpose for writing that is not for correction. It's to tell them, man, just keep going. Keep walking in this. Keep going. And so he just came off chapter 1 with his introduction and his opening remarks. And, and he was just reaffirming the, the famous verse, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. He's just encouraging the church saying, as God's people, man, we are in a win-win situation. All right? Either we can live for Christ and for his glory here on earth, or we can die and be with Christ in eternity. Like win-win. And so while we're here, we get to just live boldly and with courage and with faith. And so then he gets to chapter 2, and he kind of gets sarcastic, right? He says, church, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit. And so some translations, they'll, they'll take that, and they'll use that word if, and, and then they'll put it in since, right? Because they want it to be more clear. But, but the word is if, but it's not this kind of hopeful, like, man, I hope this is true. I hope this all works out kind of if. It's an if that is certain. Like, it's, if I were to say to you, everybody this morning, like, okay, if you're here and you're breathing this morning, like, that, like there's a level of certainty I have there like, in saying that because, like, you're here, so you're breathing, right? So it's almost, it's like almost sarcastic, like, given saying that Paul is using, and he says, man, if your heart is stirred for him, if you are worshiping him with all you are, if you are making him the center of your life, then complete my joy by being unified. Have the same love. Have the same mind. Pursue the same goals. Be one people in the name of Christ. It's worship to community. It's this natural progression. And I found it interesting that Paul says complete his joy in this. Like, he could have said, like, glorify God in this. And, like, obviously that wouldn't be wrong. But he purposefully says, complete my joy. It's not because he just wants them to look, make him look good. But it will mean that they will be effective in carrying out God's purposes. And that brings him joy. Right? This is a church that Paul planted. And nothing's going to bring him more joy than the church that God used him to start is now unified and growing. Okay, so it's like a parent when they see their child thriving. Or they, they catch their child doing something good. Like, it's not wrong. It, it, it brings them joy. Okay, so um, Rochelle and I are in a life phase where we just, we're going to freak out if our kid does anything well. Like, I mean, we're just like, it's kind of like few and far between. So we're just going to like freak out. Like, so we have a three-year-old boy. And when he shares a toy with his little sister without one of us asking... Or he actually said please or thank you without being like, now what do you say, right? Like, that's just a cool moment for us. Like, that's just, that's just going to bring us joy when we see that. Um, and then, like, two minutes later, he'll snatch the toy back and, like, push her over, right? Like, a little, like, elbow shimmy. And then it's like, man, whose kid is this? Like, my, I didn't teach him that. Like, that's your side of the family, like, crazy Midwesterners. Like, we don't do that around here. 
AJ, we're going to edit that out. She's in the nursery. I, she shouldn't hear that. Um, <laughs> but listen, what is cool about Philippi is that he's running to this church, and we know how this church started. Acts chapter 16 gives us the story of its first three members. Okay, so the first member is this woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple goods, we're told, right? She's a successful businesswoman. She had a big home, big enough to tell Paul and Silas once they were converted, hey, come stay with me. Let my home be the base of this new church. That's the first member. And then you have, secondly, what Luke describes as a slave girl who was possessed And she was taunting Paul and Silas as they were walking to the local synagogue, just taunting them behind them. And Paul had enough. And Paul just turned around and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. Like just did a roadside exorcism in front of everyone. Like just one time. I want to do that just one time. Like just just anger, just be like, come out. Bam. Like converted on the spot. That's the second member of this church. But her owners of this uh, slave girl, they got angry, all right, because they, Paul and Silas just stole one of their workers. So they rile up the crowd in Philippi, and they turn the crowd against them and tell them that these guys are just speaking blasphemy, that they're a harm to the uh, area around them, and he gets Paul and Silas thrown in jail. So now they're in jail, and God sends an earthquake that opens up the jail cells so now the prisoners can just walk out. And this jailer, who, who, this Roman jailer who assumes Paul and Silas have escaped, he goes to kill himself because he knows, man, they just escaped on my watch. There's no point in me staying alive. They're probably going to kill me anyway. So let me do it myself. He's about to stick the sword in, and he hears Paul go, wait, 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 wait. We're still here. <laughs> we didn't escape. We, we didn't go anywhere. And this jailer is just so... Um, uh, just stunned that, that Paul has done this, and, and he heard them singing like hymns while they were in chains before, and so he goes, man, how can I be saved? I want what you have. And there, right there, him and his household are converted and baptized, okay? So then Paul leaves the city shortly thereafter, and he leaves behind this new small community of believers. A successful businesswoman, An ex-demon-possessed slave girl and now a duty-bound Roman jailer. Like, how do you think that first membership meeting went? (laughs) Like, how how do you think those three just started to interact with one another when there was some tension over what we should do with the facility or how we, you know, how we should handle an issue? Because sometimes churches have issues, right? Very rare, very rare. But, like, sometimes they do. (laughs) Like, do you think there might have been some tension? Do you think they failed to see eye-to-eye in some things? And yet, with Christ at the center, this diverse community was bound together. And so Paul urges them, man, stay of the same mind, stay of the same heart, keep pursuing that. Because we all know unity needs to be constantly worked for, constantly pursued. And so it was worship that moved them towards community, which now in verses 3 through 4 moves them to service. And this is where we're going to land. It moves them to Christ-centered service. And that's where Paul goes next in his exhortation. He guides them on how to act amongst one another. How should this community act in a way that's going to glorify God? And he gives a negative command, and then he gives a positive one. And in order to serve each other well here at Grace Church, we need to hear both. 
So first he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition. Notice he doesn't say ambition is wrong. He doesn't say to have, he says that, he doesn't say to have aspiration and to have goals is wrong or to have drive is bad because Paul himself was probably the most ambitious person in the Bible. But there is a difference between holy ambition and selfish ambition. Namely, holy ambition seeks to glorify God and to make much of him. And my effort is to make much of him. While selfish ambition seeks to glorify self. It seeks to make much of self. And selfish ambition will flow out of a heart that is corrupted by pride. By a mind that is polluted by rivalry. And it was true in Philippi and it's true today. Pride and rivalry are the death knell of churches. Where internal strife limits and stunts outward impact. Rivals, you see, don't have the same mind. Rivals aren't united so that the two can coexist fruitfully. Rivals don't sacrifice for one another. Rivals do nothing for one another. They, they act just for themselves. And, and, and Paul just calls it out as hollow. It's empty glory. It's self-seeking, right? So rivalries are great for football games. They are horrible for churches. Either a church is going to be moving in unity or they're going to be splintered in selfish ambition and their witness will be harmed because of it. And in this way, the church ought to distinguish itself from the culture around it. Um, so listen, the, the culture's ethic is um, look out for yourself first. Make yourself happy first and then serve others, right? you got to take care of you. And it's taken this really individualized ethic that has been kind of growing for a couple hundred of years. It's taken this really selfish ambition and it gave it a makeover so it sounds good. So all the time you hear and you see things like, man, I just had to make, I just had to realize I had to make myself happy first. I had to realize that I, I got to live for me. That, that maturing meant finding the best version of myself. And it's all these kind of good sayings and they get retweeted and they get likes on Facebook and on Instagram. But it's me, it's me, it's all about me. It's, it's navel gazing. Do you know what navel gazing is? It's just staring down. Like, I don't even see anything out here. I'm just, I'm just worried about me. I don't care what's going on around me. I just got to take care of me. And somehow that's become like the popular cultural ethic. And this is far from the kingdom ethic of the Bible. I mean, as we'll see just in a little bit in this passage, our salvation church hinges upon Jesus not having that mentality. Like if Jesus said, you know what, I just got to worry about myself. I just have to find deep meaning within myself. If Jesus was navel-gazing, we're all in trouble. I'm getting ahead of my outline, all right? So Paul starts with a negative. He says, don't do this, but rather do this. In humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Humility is the secret to Christ-centered service. Humility amongst the community of faith is the ethic that distinguishes a church that is thriving from a church that is failing. So, most interesting thing I found out this week, all right, while studying for this um, sermon, is that that word humility, that Greek word for humility that was used in this passage, had up until this point always had a negative connotation with it. Until it got to the time of the early church. Because the word was associated with slavery. You see, you were humbled because you were a slave and you had no choice. Like you only worked for others. You only went for the interest of others. You were a slave. You had no choice. And that is why humility has the same root word that we get our current word, humiliated. You ever think about that? How close those two words are, and yet now in our culture, they have vastly different definitions. Slaves were, um, had to practice humili- humility because it humiliated them. And the reason why that flipped is the early church. Because they were verbally attacked by the culture around them as a group that was humbled. As a group that was brought low. As a group that only had to look to the interest of others. And the church owned it. And they flipped it. And now it became a core virtue they all sought to embody. Like, how awesome is that? Like, they just took negative press and they just said, yeah, we're going we're to take that, accept that, and flip it. And 2,000 years later, humility is going to be positive. It's a positive thing to be humble, to be low, so that you can serve and love others well. There is a famous kind of definition of humility that I'm sure uh, many of you have heard. And it says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So the paradox in humility is that if you're acting and living in such a way where you just want others to call you humble... Like, that's not being humble. C.S. Lewis, he's getting a lot of play in today's service. Um, He said this. He said, the humble man will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking of himself at all. And a church that is marked by humility will seek to serve others. Notice the text doesn't say you never think of yourself, but it says as you think of yourself, you also are thinking of others. It doesn't end with you. It always goes outward. Humility will seek to outdo one another in showing honor. That's another way Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. It will look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is a people, we can put it this way, okay? It is a people who just have their head on a swivel. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't just do things when they're asked. They're not just like, oh, man, I got caught and I got asked. But they are looking for things to do. They are looking amongst the body, and they are postured in such a way where their eyes are scanning for need and trying to address that need. Because Christ-centered service is an outflow of humility. But, but Paul's not done, all right, because he also knows that motivation is important. 
All right, anytime a command is given in the Bible, a lot of times this kind of gets lost on people, but anytime a command is given a Bible in the Bible, just read around it a little bit. The Bible will also always provide the motivation to do so. So it's not just do it and shut up. It's do it and here's why. Because it's not just acts of service that are important. It's motivation behind it that matters that should distinguish God's people. God cares about motivation. So let me put it this way. Um, let's say a wife comes home at the end of a day. And she walks into the door to find that her husband snuck home from work without telling her and cleaned up everything. Cleaned up the whole house. Cleared the entire garage. Tackled all the projects in the house. Cleaned the kitchen. Got dinner together while folding laundry for when she walked back in the door. Like, and the wife walks in and is just like, whoa. Okay, maybe your wife wouldn't say that. If my wife walked in, she'd be like, whoa. What did you make for dinner? That makes me nervous. All right, I don't know what she would think about that. I ordered dinner. I did takeout, all right? Um, but she just goes, man, this is awesome. And she just goes from room to room, just blown away. And at some point, she just goes to her husband and goes, why did you do this? This is amazing. What if the husband said this? You know what, babe? Um, I'm just so sick of you being on my case. And I figured, <laughs> I figured if I did this one time, that you would just hopefully stop your nagging. <laughs> and that you would think twice before asking me to do more because look at this, I did this. By the way, there's a two-week golf trip to Ireland I'm leaving for tomorrow. <laughs> and you can't say no now. I nailed it. Okay, how's that going to end up for you, right? Like, like where, where is that going to go for you? Because, listen, at the end of the day, man, kitchen got cleaned. Dinner is on the table. All these things did get done. But something tells me like, that's not going to make your wife feel all warm and fuzzy anymore. Like, I don't think she's going to be as excited anymore. Why? Because motivation matters. Why we do what we do can probably even be more important than what we actually do. Motivation is important. So going back to the text, if, if, if we need now proper motivation to live in humility, to, to, to let Christ-centered service go out, like where do we go for that? Let's get back to the passage. Verses 5 and 11, 5 through 11 of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses, it, it, it's not as readily seen in English, but, but Paul is quoting what is believed to have been an ancient hymn in the church. 
or, or an ancient creed, that this is something that the church would kind of repeat week in and week out, these verses um, 5 through 11. Early church obviously didn't have Bibles that they could just open, so they memorized kind of these shorter creeds or these shorter hymns to just encourage one another in the truth of Christ. And, and, and if, you, um, if you're into theology, you, you probably know that there is deep-seated theological debates that have spanned 2,000 years on these six verses. There is a ton of scholarly debate on the person of Jesus, debates that led to councils in the 400s and 500s, uh, debates that reigned through the Middle Ages, and debates that kind of fell off but then recently picked up steam in the 18th century all the way up to t- today. And the debate is really one question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he God? Is he man? Is he, is he fully God? Is he fully man? Is he half and half? Has he been one and now he's the other? It's all these questions, but obviously you can't go far too deep into that, but it's important to note that Paul did not write this to spark debate. He wrote it to provide an example for the church on how they should act amongst one another, right? That, that Jesus is both our Savior and our teacher. We are justified alone by his life, death, and resurrection, but we are also guided in how to live by his teaching. You can't take one without the other. And so this verse is while debated often, it's really for the purpose of adoration and emulation. Adore him for what he's done, emulate him in what he's taught. And as it concerns the motivation for the church, uh, this ancient creed gives us both the reasons and the results of Christ-centered service. Verses 5 through 8, we gave us the reasons. That this poem begins and ends with this eternal, glorious relationship between the Father and the Son. That Jesus is divine. He's existed for all of eternity. He was equal in dignity and worth with God the Father. And yet, he emptied himself. He put aside the privileges and rights of his status and he took the form of a servant. As a human whose primary mission was to serve, right? He never stopped becoming God. When Jesus became man, he didn't stop becoming God. But he lived open-handed in order to give and not just take. So again, we, we kind of see this division of culture ethic and kingdom ethics. Our culture's ethic, especially today, is get, get, get. More, more, more. Just take and take and take. And Jesus just turned that upside down. And he says, no, the outlook on life that will bring you joy is not get, get, get. It's give, and it's give, and it's give, and it is way better to give than it is to receive. Paul is saying, have the mind of Jesus, not the mind of the world that doesn't know him. This this Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, who humbled himself. Again, a derogatory term in this day, humbled himself and became obedient to death. He came to give himself for those who would believe in him. And he said as much, Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his followers, they they always had a power struggle amongst them. They were always kind of struggling with who was the greatest among them. 
And, and, and who had the most pull with Jesus? And who was the best positioned next to Jesus? And Jesus just gently, patiently, but firmly said, no. In fact, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He flipped the ethic. He presented kingdom principles that went against the culture. And so Paul says, church, think about our Savior. This, this Son of God who's existed for all of eternity, and yet he was born into obscurity in a stable in a small town to lower to middle-class parents. This Savior who lived for his first 30 years as a nobody, who worked as a trade, as a carpenter, stayed near his hometown that nobody respected. This Savior who then spent three years loving the unlovable, serving the unservable, teaching these kingdom ethics to 12 men that went against the grain. This Savior who was then nailed to a cross besides two criminals. And the cross was the worst way to go out. It was the most public, most humiliating way you could go. It was an embarrassment to his family. It was an embarrassment to his followers. It was an embarrassment to anybody who was associated with him. He was abandoned by men. Shamed by men. And then the wrath that was due these men was instead poured onto him by the Father. And Paul is saying he took it by choice. And because of love, because of his desire to serve, not because Jesus thought less of himself, but by God's grace, he thought of himself less. This is our Jesus. This is our example. And this is our reason for Christ-centered service. So those are the reasons, but Paul also provides us the results in verses 9 through 11. After going to the cross to satisfy the ransom of the lives of his children, God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him back to the eternal seat of glory, back in fellowship with him, and giving him the name above every name, the name of Lord, the one who will be judge and king over all the earth. And so Jesus is in a class by himself as he re-enters glory. And notice the outward result of Christ's work. Paul just affirms, one day, every knee is going to bow. In heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess. And some will do it in celebration through faith. And others will do it in anguish. But there will be a day when all will know for sure, that Jesus is Lord. And this is the result of Christ-centered service. This is the motivation for the church. This is the motivation for Grace Church. So here's how I want to close this morning. Just as I did with Christ-centered community a week ago, I, I just want to lay out some application for us here at Grace there's really two ways to serve one another in such a way that embodies this kind of ethic Paul is putting forth in the church. There's kind of the structural side and the, and the organic side. So on the organic side, it's this mindset that seeks to the interests and needs of others within the body, to find creative and winsome ways that we can love each other, to have a culture amongst us as the body of Christ, to just have our heads on a swivel. 
And it's based on relationship and transparency. It's upon offering our time and our treasure and our talents to the benefit of others. Okay? So there's an unlimited amount of things this could lead to. Right? Like if you're good with home projects, it's offering to fix something for free or a discounted cost. If you're good with children, it's serving a young mother by watching their kids one morning a week. It's agreeing to go over someone's resume and give them professional advice or recommendations. It's sitting over a cup of coffee and just hearing somebody out who's going through a tough season and needs a friend who will listen. It's living open-handed so that we can be financially generous to support the work and mission of the church. All right? So I know there's a few of you out there who are like, here we go, right? 30 minutes just to get to the money grab at the end. All right? But, but listen, I'll be honest. I probably do a disservice to you talking too little about money because I'm afraid to. And I'm neglecting a major ethic in the New Testament Bible by not expounding on God's word, which renders generosity a result of salvation and an ethic of Christ-centered service. So while we are actively seeking as God's people to see where can we stretch ourselves in our time, where can we stretch ourselves in our treasure, where can we stretch ourselves in our talents in order to help and be a part and build up the community and what God is doing here at Grace Church. It's a mentality that we're actively wanting to bless others with that which we've been blessed with. No strings attached. Simply because we've been blessed by God in various ways. The Bible says we've been giving gifts not to highlight us. We've been blessed financially not to bless just us so that God can use them to build up the body, enhance his call to make disciples. So that's the organic side. But then there's also Christ-centered service on, on the structural side, on maybe the programmatic side. If you remember in our First Peter uh, series in the spring, I, I took the time to go through what is needed from a volunteer standpoint every single Sunday just to make this happen. A church that averages somewhere around 240, 250 attenders a week needs close to 40 volunteers every single Sunday. Over 20% of our adults are needed week in and week out from nursery to kids' worship, to greeting, to counting, to facilities, to sound booth, to computer, to worship team, to children's check-in. And the more of us that get involved, the better and more joyful it is for everybody. So we all know that statistic, right? The one I'm about to say. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I know that just always seems to be the way it is inside the church and outside the church. But listen, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be the way we do it at Gray's Church. So there is a list of serving teams at Grace Connect and on our website. And the encouragement is just get on a team. Get on a couple teams. Get part of what's going on here. It will increase your joy and love for Jesus Christ. It will increase your joy and love for one another. And it will enhance the work we're trying to do here at Grace Church. And so I just want to talk real with you. Like, if your schedule is so full that you cannot volunteer at Grace Church, my, my prayer is that this passage would stir you in you a desire to free yourself up enough to serve and love more. At the end of your life, you won't wish you worked more. You won't wish you played more golf. You're going to wish you loved more. You're going to wish you carved out more time for kingdom ethics. 
And, and my guess is, again, if you're in Christ and, and you're not serving, that it has to be killing you on some level. Because we just saw that a Christ-centered person is looking for ways to do this. It's just coming out of them. And if it is true that your calendar is so full that you cannot serve, I imagine it's killing you that you can't. And that's not a drive-by guilting. That is just encouraging you in the truth of the Lord that Christ-centered service increases joy. It increases God's mission. And, and like, listen, we are in northern New Jersey. We are going at a frenetic pace. Our calendars are full. Taxes are wild. And so serving and volunteering with no strings attached and just giving generously with little margin in our income, the culture will look at that and go, that's inefficient. That's unhelpful. But praise God, we're not going by culture's ethic. We are bound by kingdom ethics. And all of a sudden, the need for manpower and for volunteers becomes an opportunity to step into that space. The opportunity for financial generosity is an opportunity to step into that space where we can give and give to others who are also seeking to give, give, give. A church is nothing without the commitment of its people. No matter how good anything else is that they do from a public performance standpoint, it is nothing without the community of saints giving serving, pouring themselves out because of what Christ did for them and in them so that he can do mighty things through them. So this week we looked at how the church ought to act amongst one another. Hopefully there's something to hang on to. Next week we pivot to see how this internal community is supposed to act outside these church doors. So I encourage you to be back next week. Let's pray. Father, it is good to open your word with your people and to just see kingdom ethics on the pages, see kingdom ethics stir our hearts to show we don't need to be bound and enslaved by a culture's ethic that will not build up joy, that will not build your church. And so, Father, I thank you for the many and scores of people in this church who are pouring themselves out for your church. We pray for those that you have, who have brought, that you would encourage them to, to, to get in the game, to get skin in the game for the purpose of being part of what you're doing, Lord. Bind us together in worship, in community, and service, all so that that will equip us for mission, Lord. It's your name we pray. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.